This is Vis-a-Vis, a new podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Program at Columbia University. Vis-a-Vis features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities, Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon-Sorbonne, and École Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face-to-face with, or as we say in French, vis-à-vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Every year, 1.3 million babies are born with congenital heart disease worldwide. One-third of them need an artificial valve implant. These complex heart surgeries save hundreds of thousands of babies' lives every year. But valve implants are not a perfect solution. There's an increased risk of blood clots, and as the baby's heart grows, the valve does not. New valves need to be implanted every few years, which requires multiple operations. These repeated surgeries have a deep impact on these children's quality of life. In today's episode of Vis-a-Vis, we will be discussing a pioneering technique currently being explored to improve operations on children's hearts. This technique involves the creation of artificial heart valves that expand as the child heart grows, which will significantly cut down the number of operations a child has to undergo. This innovation is being developed by David Kerfa, Florence Irving Assistant Professor of Surgery and Director of the Pediatric Heart Valve Center at Columbia University, and Abdul Barakat, CNRS Director of Research, AXA Professor at the Hydrodynamics Laboratory at École Polytechnique, and Co-Chair of Biomedical Engineering at Institut Polytechnique de Paris. I have the pleasure and the honor to talk to them about their project today. Professor Kalfa is a cardiothoracic surgeon. Among his specializations is pediatric cardiac surgery. Over the past several years, He has performed cutting-edge studies that demonstrate the use of polymers in the design and development of novel artificial heart valves. Professor Barakat has a long-standing interest in cardiovascular bioengineering. He is a recognized expert in experimental and computational biomechanics with applications including computational modeling of vascular mechanics. Professor Kalfa, let me turn to you first. Could you provide us with a state of play concerning cardiac surgery for children today? How common is it for a child to need cardiac surgery? How common is it that these kids need repeated surgeries? And how does that affect their lives? Thank you very much, Emmanuel. Thank you for this invitation. Um, that These are great questions. Um, so um, I should state first that um, congenital heart defects are actually the most frequent malformation in children, in humans, I, I should say. Um, almost 1% of all the babies in the world uh, have a congenital heart defect. So that's a huge number. And the vast ma- majority of them will need an open heart surgery. In a center like Columbia, we do open heart surgeries between two and five times a day, just to give you, you know, an idea of how frequent this type of condition is and how frequent an open heart surgery is needed in children. And this can go from one day of life to, uh, to the adult uh, adulthood. Um, 
regarding your, your question of what kind of health condition can lead to cardiac surgery, it's mainly malformation of the heart. And finally, you are asking me how common is it um, that these kids need repeated op uh, surgery. Actually, that's very frequent, especially when you start working and uh, on the valves. Um, um, these patients need multiple operations. Why? Because first of all, we always try to repair a valve, which means that we keep the native tissue of the kid, um, and then we try to improve the functioning of the valve. And if this doesn't work, then we have to replace the valve. In both options, you know, uh, these patients need uh, open heart surgery and repeat open heart surgery, either to improve the repair or to replace the valve um, uh, multiple times because of the lack of growth that we will be discussing very soon. Right, right. And and could you could you explain to us, uh, for those like myself who are laypersons, how exactly does does a heart valve work? Um, you know, what what's the specific challenge that you propose to address in the project that you're um, developing with uh, Professor Baraka at Polytechnique? So the valve is a structure inside the heart that allows the blood to go into one direction and not the other one. Promote the anti-grade flow without having a retrograde flow. Okay, so we have four types, four valves in the heart, two on the left side, which are the mitral valve and the aortic valve, and then two valves on the right side, which are the tricuspid valve and the pulmonary valve. Three of these valves are made of three leaflets, which are, you know, these small components, which open, right, during, you know, the ejection and then close during the diastole. Um, and one of these valves is made, the mitral valve is made of two leaflets only. So this is the way that these valves work. And the, the, the specific challenge that we, we, we want to address um, is the fact that Currently, none of the uh, valve prosthesis that we have available right now have a growth potential. So what does it mean? It means that when you have to replace a valve, whatever valve it is, in a neonate, for example, or in an infant, then this valve is obviously a small valve because you don't have enough space to put a large valve, obviously, and this valve will not grow. So you will have to reoperate multiple times these children to change the valve once the valve is outgrown by the patient or when the valve fails, because some of these valves also um, have a, a, a significant tendency to degenerate and calcify with time. And each of these um, open heart surgery is a significant surgery with a significant amount of morbidity and mortality, right? So this is what we, this is the unmet clinical need that we really want and we are working um, to, to, to address along with Professor Barakat. Right. That's fascinating. And on your side of the equation, um, Professor Barakat, so could you describe the kind of valves that, that you are trying to develop and why they are um, called polymeric valves and, and what is a polymeric valve? How does it work? Um, and, and how do these valves differ from the ordinary valves that um, Professor Kalfa just described are being implemented on children's hearts? Thank you, Emmanuel, for the invitation. Um, so uh, the polymeric valves are basically valves that are made of polymeric materials, as opposed to mechanical valves or biological valves, right? So that they're basically synthetic materials. Mm -hmm. If you put uh, biological valves into kids, for example, 
biological valves that are derived from animals, for example, they've been shown to have limited durability. And so polymeric valves are supposed to be superior in that respect. And with the ability to control the, co the composition of polymers, we're able to make them biocompatible and also hemodynamically very attractive. So they're able to basically accomplish their, their task, which is what uh, Professor Kalfa mentioned, the idea of, of having forward flow, but not retrograde flow. Now you, you asked what's specific about the, these types of valves that we're developing in collaboration with Professor Kalfa. Well, this goes back to what Professor Kalfa mentioned that you don't have room to put a large valve in a small child. So what we're trying to do here is since we need more surface area, basically, because as the child grows, we need to be able to accommodate the, the, the growth of the vessel that the valve is inserted in, we're using the third dimension, right? So instead of something that is completely flat to begin with, we're actually making a structure that has some height to it. You know, as the child grows, this thing becomes flatter and flatter. So by the time the child becomes an adult, ideally your valve is flat, just like an adult's native valve is. And so the, the key thing is to try and add surface area while trying to maintain optimal performance. And, and these valves um, would last uh, it, when they're made in polymer, what is their life expectancy? Um, I mean, do they last 10 years, 20 years? Do you have an idea? Are you able to test that? Our data uh, show that the durability of this valve is very, very promising. Um, uh, let's remind that uh, the currently used porcine or bovine valve that Professor Barakat just mentioned um, usually lasts for 12 to 15 years in adults, but the rate and um, yeah, the rate of de degeneration and degradation uh, in children is much, much faster. When you implant a porcine or bovine valve in, um, let's say, a three months old uh, infant, it lasts sometimes only um, uh, nine to 12 months, right? So um, it degenerates very, very quickly. These valves, the durability of these valves seems to be very promising and they can last up to uh, uh, 10 to 15 years, which is a huge benefit for this patient when you know how quickly the um, uh, animal derived valve can degenerate. Right, right. And, and then the valves themselves, uh, so that's the part of the surgical procedure to actually implant these valves. But are these valves sewn on, onto the heart or is there a process whereby you, you make tissue grow around uh, the valve so that it actually gets implanted? Very good question. So when we do, you know, um, because we are working specifically on the pulmonary valve, right, which is the valve which is located between the right ventricle and the pulmonary arteries, which are the arteries going to the lungs. When we do this operation on a daily basis, um, I did this one uh, yesterday and I will do another one today, um, we have to actually reconstruct completely the connection between the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery. So we have to implant not only a valve, but actually a new vessel, right? Which is a kind of a tube, basically, a new vessel with a valve inside. So um, uh, in our project, we um, hypothesize that um, biohybrid 
design would be the most effective. What does it mean, a biohybrid? We mean that, you know, the valve, as Dr. Barakat was mentioning, the valve is made of a polymer, which is biostable, which means that the polymer will stay here forever. It will not degrade uh, with time, right? But the tube that we will implant at the same time, which is the future vessel where the valve will be is made of a biodegradable polymer. So the concept behind the vessel is actually a concept of regenerative medicine and tissue engineering. So we will use a biodegradable polymer to create this tube. This polymer is designed to degrade with time and being replaced by a new tissue made of the cells coming from the host, cells coming from the patient. And the cells will lead to the formation of a neo-autologous and living tissue. And because it's autologous and living, it can grow. So the vessel or the tube will grow because at the end of the day, it will be made of the patient's own tissue. And then the valve itself is made of a biostable polymer, so it will not be replaced by a new tissue. But thanks to the design that Dr. Baraka just mentioned, with the extra length of height, then this valve can accommodate the growth of the tube once the tube grows. So that's the whole concept. I see. And Professor Barakat, so when you're creating, um, developing these valves, obviously you have to be able to test them. So first of all, where are these these polymer valves developed? Are, are, are they developed in, in a lab or or do you have at Polytechnique itself the uh, the wherewithal to to design and, and, and produce these valves and then test them? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very good question. We, the development and the testing is actually done in collaboration between Dr. Kalfa's group and ours. Uh, so um, we at, at Ecole Polytechnique are primarily spearheading the computational part of the design, implementation, and testing. And uh, Professor Kalfa's group is primarily conducting the experiments. And so um, the, the, the idea is we're, we're doing this um, approach, kind of highly interdisciplinary approach, uh, where we're using uh, computational simulations to optimize the design. And you know, whenever you're doing computational simulations, you need to also validate the simulations experimentally. And so that's why we need to also run experiments that show that the computational models are valid and accurate. I see. And and how how does um, computational modeling work essentially? I mean, you you take data from the polymeric valve itself in terms of its um, size and 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 different data points. Uh, you basically create a program, you enter them into the program, and how, how how does the testing work? Computational modeling of the performance of, say, engineered systems has been around for many in many different industries for a while, right? You know, cars often are designed computationally before they're built. Airplanes and wings are designed computationally before they're built. There are many, many industries that actually start with computational design, at least in order to narrow down the, the choices 
that you're going to eventually test experimentally, right? Computational modeling is a very robust and powerful tool to try and play around with parameters. Uh, so, you know, you start with some basic design and then you, you say, well, what if I change this parameter? What if I tweak this the material properties of this design? What if I change the dimensions? What if I change the angle at which it's oriented? Things like that. And these are things, if you have confidence in your computational model, then these are things that you can test much more easily and in a less expensive manner than having to run an experiment every time to try and and and. and get the results. In the specific case of, of the valves that we're working on, we started dreaming up what these designs might look like. And we then um, drew the design on a computer. And then we entered that design into what's called a meshing program. A meshing program means you convert your drawing into a computational mesh on which you can actually make computations at every point in the design. And then that computational mesh is then entered into another software in order to know how this design is going to respond to external stimuli. So in our case, for example, we say, well, we need a certain amount of flow to go through this valve. And we control the mechanical properties as well as the thickness of the valve leaflets. And we, we try and see what the computational prediction is on how the valve is going to open, what dynamics, how is it going to be fully open? Is it going to be only partially open? And then when it closes, does it close fully? Does it uh, close only partially and then leak? You know, so all these are very important considerations, right? And then we, in, in this particular case, we want to make sure that the designs work for a child as well as for an adult, right? Now, we do these simulations, but at some point we have to validate them experimentally. And that's where the collaboration with Professor Kalfa's group becomes essential. So we tell them, for example, these are some designs that we think have the potential to work. Can we validate them? And then they measure the performance, the opening, the, the closure, the what's called the regurgitation, meaning the leakage of the valve, if there is any. And we then verify that the experiments give you the same thing as the computations. And when we get agreement, then we have confidence in the computational modeling, and we can go back to the computational models and use them to try and optimize the design even further. That's kind of the idea of, of iterating between experiments and computations. Right. So there's a feedback loop in a way between the testing, the computational testing and the design or the fixing or the tweaking of the design of the valves that is being done in your lab also, uh, David Kalfa. And, and Professor Kalfa, so uh, in terms of testing, what what do you do? Uh, because then, you know, these valves have to work in uh, in real life, as it were, uh, not just as a, as a computational model. How do you test them in real life? We have basically three ways to validate it. The first one is to use what we have here in my lab, um, a, a, a hard valve pulse duplicator, which means basically that it's um, a bench test setting that um, where we can put a valve and that we will um, mimic the circulation of the blood as it was through the, uh, uh, the heart, basically. And um, we can measure uh, and quantify the functioning of the valve. We also have a durability 
valve tester, which means that it's another machine that we can put a valve which will open and close the valve in a very accelerated fashion to see how much uh, cycles of opening and closing this valve can endover, uh, can uh, support basically before failing from a mechanical standpoint. And finally, at the end of the day, obviously, we will implant it in a large animal model, right? So we will implant it in um, a growing lamb model. So we take a lamp and then we'll implant the valve in the primary position and then we can um, then dilate this valve a few hours or a few days after the surgery and then repeat an echocardiography or a, a, a catheterization to assess the degree of obstruction and regurgitation before dilation, which would correspond to uh, the diameter of uh, in, of a young baby, and after dilation, which would correspond to the diameter of an adolescent or an adult. So this is the way that we use all this experimental data, basically, uh, to, to, to work in a very collaborative and multidisciplinary fashion with Dr. Maracas team. Oh, that's really fascinating. That's fascinating. You're mentioning this collaboration, and I, I was wondering, um, Professor Barakat, in, in, in terms of um, uh, the collaboration that you've established uh, with uh, David Kelfa's team, um, how, you know, how, how crucial is it for an institution like yours, for, for Ecole Polytechnique, for Institut Polytechnique de Paris, to create these collaborations? And also, um, perhaps, uh, you know, how, how often um, do these collaborations happen um, specifically on cardiac research? I mean, um, are, are, are there a lot of these international collaborations or, or do labs basically work um, more often on, on a national basis? Um, how important is it really to create these international collaborations and, and, and also, you know, what incentives are, are needed? I mean, what, what are the challenges? Are they financial challenges or logistical challenges? Um, how can we encourage more of these um, international uh, collaborations that lead to um, you know, such uh, constructive and promising results. I've thoroughly enjoyed the collaboration with, with Professor Kalfa's group. It's been a very, um, a very gratifying experience overall. Now, you mentioned how much uh, international collaboration occurs at, uh, in cardiac research. Research is becoming or has become very international, and it's, we have all sorts of tools to, to collaborate across the world. And I think in this particular case, I mean, I think Professor Kalfa's uh, team has unique expertise that I think we couldn't have found in too many other places. So that, that uh, collaboration needed to be international. You asked also about what the hurdles are. Well, the last two years, it's been COVID. <laughs> that's, that's been one hurdle. But uh, other than that, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of hurdles, certainly financial in terms of limiting what you can do. And that's where, for example, the Alliance grant, that the seed grant that we got through Alliance program has been very, very important because uh, it has allowed us to actually do the experiments and the, and the simulations that we're doing to get things going. And now that we have the, these results, we're, we're actually writing a paper now describe these results, that's going to allow us to then go to a bigger funding source and say, let's build on the seed grant with, you know, something that would that would would uh, allow us to continue the collaboration. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And and uh, 
this is a fascinating conversation uh, for me and, and such admirable work that you're doing. My last question to both of you um, is, is, is a very simple one. You know, what, what drives you basically to, to do this work and, and you know, where, where do you find your, your motivation? Um, Professor Kalfa, do you want to start? I would say passion, uh, passion for what uh, I'm doing uh, primarily in the operating room, right? Um, it's a um, uh, challenging job, um, very highly demanding uh, for me and for you know um, my family as well, and for the whole team who is working you know along with me. So passion to improve the quality of care and the quality of the outcomes and the quality of life of these children with congenital heart defects, to give them a normal life, right? Without even talking about trying to decrease the costs related to the healthcare system, actually, right? Which is another important point to mention, maybe. That's the reason why, you know, we operate during the day and we do research during the night and during the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, and I won't ask you when you, when you sleep, because I'm, I'm sure you sleep very little. Um, Professor Barakat, uh, how about you? What, what's, what, what drives you um, to do this work and, and, and all the work indeed that you do uh, in terms of um, cardiovascular computational testing and, and computational modeling? You know, David sees, of course, these young patients in a very real and concrete way every day. I don't, but I can only imagine how it is. But, you know, I, I think if we're able to contribute a tiny bit towards improving the lives of these kids, I think it would be just absolutely amazing. So, so and, 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 you know, this is one project we work on. We work on other projects as well. And the driving force, I think, for any biomedical engineer is always Let's try to make a little contribution to improving human life. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you both for uh, your contribution for this fascinating um, conversation. Um, I've learned a lot. I'm in awe of, of what you both of you are doing. And we will be following very closely the development and the results of um, your project together. Thank you both so much and have a lovely day. Thank you. Vis-a-vis -vis is brought to you by the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris and Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Abdelbasid Ali, and I'm Emmanuel Ketan. Special thanks to Michelle Wilson and her colleagues at Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Programme and how we support academic exchanges, research, and collaboration between the U.S. and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.